Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. It's good to be with you today. Glad to see most of the north side of the gym back. It was quite empty last week. Woke up today, saw the snow again, and was wondering where, whether we were out for the same, same thing. Let me know, is this, think it'll work? Why don't we just skip? Nathan, you good with this one? Yeah? Good. Well, for those of you who haven't been with us, we're in the midst of a series on the Gospel of John, a series we've entitled, Jesus Changes Everything. And we're crossing today a sort of threshold, the first major threshold in this gospel. Having looked so much at what Jesus came to do to deal with death by dying on the cross. Now, today, we're going we're gonna to begin to look a little more closely at the other side of that. that. That Jesus came not only to deal with death, but to make available everlasting life. But what is that life? What does that everlasting life look like in the here and now? Today we're going to begin looking at that as we turn to the story, the story we're going to look at today in John chapter 5 to see how Jesus changes rest. If you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be today. John chapter 5, you can open up, turn there, but before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as if it's not enough that Jesus came to deal with death. We look to you today as the one who, in that same work of your Son, provides us with life. And we ask as we come to your word, the the record of that work, that we would know a bit more today about what that life looks like in the here and now. That our hearts would be changed and that our affections would be captivated and that we would wander no more. But find that rest that we, we cannot find on our own because without Jesus, even our search for rest undoes the very thing we're searching for. I pray today we would find it in him. So we look to him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, long before the, the, the gold rush of the 2018 Olympics, these 2018 Olympics, if you've been following along, long before the gold rush for the, the medals that hang around your neck was the gold rush of the late 1800s. When miners went in search of the mineral out of which those metals are made, or at least they used to be made. I'm not so sure anymore, but they used to be, right? They were were gold. And one particularly infamous rush was the one in, in 1896 when the discovery of gold in the Klondike region of northwest Canada, it, 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 uh, it, sparked the migration of upwards of 100,000 prospectors. 
You can imagine trekking up into Canada, having to bring, because of the border crossing, even in those days, having to bring a year's supply of food with you so you wouldn't be a tax on the native people of Canada. You can imagine this over the mountains in the Yukon to Dawson City. That's where that is, up in the Yukon region of Canada. A migration of over 100,000 prospectors. A migration that has been immortalized in the novels of Jack London, Call of the Wild, White Fang. But no less in the poetry of Jack London's friend, Robert W. Service. I want to read for you, I want to begin today by reading for you from one of his poems that captured the very heart of that gold rush. He wrote, There's a race of men that don't fit in. A race that can't sit still. So they break the hearts of kith and kin and they roam the world at will. They range the field and rove the flood. And they climb the mountain's crest. Theirs is the curse of gypsy blood. And they don't know how to rest. That sound familiar? This restlessness reminds me a lot of the, the stories of these Olympic athletes going after repeat or three-peat performances, four-peat, five-peat. If you watched the girl who won, who won the pairs skating, her, her fifth Olympics, finally winning gold. And it reminds me a lot of these, the, these Olympic athletes because as one athlete said, I just can't stop. Because good as gold is, when you get it, it's like these athletes understand that gold isn't good enough. And you read the stories of some of these prospectors up into the Yukon, spending their life savings to get there. Even the ones who struck it rich die in utter poverty. Because after they're done in Dawson City, they go off in search of gold somewhere else. That theirs is the curse of the gypsy blood, and they don't know how to rest. But this should also sound familiar, because the fact is that gypsy blood runs through our veins as well, whether we like it or not. And there's a reason for that, because the first gypsies ever to walk this earth were our first foreparents, Adam and Eve. The Bible opens with that story of the first man and first woman who, who walked this earth and the first thing they did was walk away from God and because of it were made to walk away from his rest, from his garden, to be always searching for what they lost and never finding it for themselves. And so we, in that same bloodline, continue to search today. Ours is the curse of the gypsy blood, and we don't know how to rest. Rest is what every one of us is searching for. Rest, and to pick up on last week, restoration. Whether it's through our job or, or grooming our lawn, whether it's through our kids 
or wandering into whatever it is we think will finally settle our souls. And yet the more we try to secure rest for ourselves, the more restless we become. Have you ever felt that? We are wanderers. When we wander off in search of rest for ourselves, the more restless we become, and so we wander all the more. The Germans have a word for it. They call it wanderlust. The insatiable desire to search for something we cannot find. And today we're going to see that as we see ourselves in the story of a man who who couldn't wander anymore with his feet, even though he continued to wander with his heart. And the story is all about a feast, a pool, a question, and a response. A feast, a pool, a question, and a response. First, a feast. Story picks up in John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, it says, there was a feast of the Jews. There was a feast. You've got to ask yourself, what's a feast? What's a feast? Well, it's a celebration. And, and for the Jews, it was always a celebration of something that God did in the past that his people were longing for him to do again. That's what they celebrated, something God did in the past that his people were longing for him to do again. So, for instance, Passover. God's people would gather around yearly to remember where they came from. They would sing songs and eat certain foods and relive, in a sense, those days when God saved them out of slavery in Egypt. But it wasn't just about looking back to the past. It was even more so, even more so about looking forward and longing for God to do it again. Because like it or not, these people, this people of God, they they continued to fall into slavery. Time and time and time again. So a feast was celebrating the past, but also longing for the future. And you can see how that's flowed in even from Judaism into Christianity. So our, our celebrating, for instance, the Lord's Supper is, is something we celebrate together here. It's certainly our remembering what God did before in Jesus, but it also is a longing for him to return to do it again, to, in a, a sense, finish what he started. That's what we proclaim every time we celebrate the bread and the wine, that we proclaim his death until he returns because we're looking forward to his return, to taking the work that he did on the cross and bringing it to completion. We celebrate what God's done in the past, and we at the same time long for him to do it again. So this story in John chapter 5 is all about a feast. That's the, the context in which this story takes place, and it's, it's how the author sets this story up. It's not a throwaway line, because this story, as we'll see, relates to one of our deepest desires before God, one of our deepest longings, looking back on what God did in the past, longing for him to do it again in the future. 
even if we're not told yet at this point in the story what feast it was they were actually celebrating. What we are told, though, is that during this feast, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And that this story isn't just about a feast, but second, it's about a pool. Verse 2, now there was in Jerusalem, it says, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which was, has five roofed colonnades. We have to understand about pools back in those days was that pools weren't where you went to get cool. They were where you went to get clean and often where you went to get healed. And this particular pool was in the shadow of the temple near the gate that the sheep were most likely brought through on their way to where they were used in the temple as sacrifices. It's a, it's a very ironic picture as this story unfolds. This is the gate through which the animals come, by which they are used in sacrifice so God can be appeased because this is the program God set up for saving his people, that it's through sacrifice. So God does the work, not us. It's a vicarious, it's a vicarious death on our behalf. But the story is all about that pool because unchecked by the religious leaders of that day, even during that feast, as they were celebrating what God did in the past and supposedly longing for him to do it again in the shadow of that temple that stood for the absolute opposite, around that pool had cropped up a sort of superstition. It says in these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And apparently these invalids were there at that pool because they had bought into the idea that this pool had some magic about it. And that the only hope that they had left for finding rest from their afflictions and fulfillment of their deepest desires, deepest longings before God, even during that feast when they were supposed to be looking to God, was if they went out and found it for themselves. A superstition had, had cropped up around that pool. And we know that, not really from what the story says, how it was really originally written, but from what it doesn't, what later cropped into this story. If you read the story in a more recent Bible translation, you'll be surprised that it skips from verse 3 to verse 5. Do you see that in there? This does not happen a lot in the Bible, but it has happened here because we once depended on manuscripts that were less than reliable. Now we know better, so we've since taken it out again. But it's interesting what that, what those verse, what that verse 4, that wasn't originally in the story, that what we learned from it. Because these, this do, these words in, that, in verse 4, they do explain why so many blind and lame and paralyzed were lying by this pool. They were waiting there for the, the moving of the water, is what it says. You probably have a footnote. The moving of the water, that's the verse that was never supposed to be in there. For an angel of the Lord, it says, went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stopped, stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease they had. 
And those words are not part of the story. Because that's not a picture the Bible wants to paint. Can you imagine that? For some, I think that sounds pretty cool at some point. Oh, an angel comes down, stirs the water. And you hobble over and you get in first and you can get healed, right? A jackpot kind of thing. But that's not a, a, a picture the Bible wants to paint as, as if in some corner of the world, even in the, the shadow of the temple that represented the absolute opposite, as if, if God at some time, somewhere, was working on a first-come, first-served basis. An angel coming down, stirring the water, and then, and then sitting back as earth's invalids provide heaven's entertainment in a sort of survival of the fittest charade. What kind of God would do that? As if he didn't have grace enough that we're left to, 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 to beat each other to the punch to go get healed, but only ever one at a time. This story is all about a feast. It's all about a pool. But it wasn't true. That superstition that had cropped up. The explanation is helpful for for even understanding what was going on with, with the man that we're about to meet. But not because it was true. But because these blind and lame and paralyzed lying by this pool had begun to believe it. You see, they had bought into the idea that the only hope that they had left for finding rest from their afflictions was if they went out and found it for themselves. But this story is all about a feast that represents one of our deepest longings before God, celebrating what God did in the past, longing for him to do it again. And also about a pool that represents how we go searching for that longing everywhere else. And the truth of the matter is, that even if we acknowledge God as the God of grace he is, we often slip into thinking, we start believing the lie that our few square feet in our little corner of the world is the one corner he's working on a first-come, first-served basis. That's the danger. Left in the brokenness long enough, we start searching for answers in all the wrong places. That our only hope of finding rest from our afflictions is if we go out and find our own pool of Bethesda. You ever feel that? You ever feel yourself slipping into that? That I've got I've to make of this life what I want because no one's going to make it for me at work, at play, with family, with friends. Ever feel that? Like my only hope is in myself. The story is all about a feast that represents one of our deepest longings before God and about a pool that, that, that represents, that points to how, how we go searching for that everywhere else. But it's also, thirdly, about a question. Verse 5 says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And who knows how many other pools he had laid beside. 
trying to find rest from his afflictions. But, but here he is, and it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, and here's the question, do you want to be healed? Now I want you to imagine this. 38 years. There may have been a time that you, you put your hope in God, but that time was past. There may have been a moment you, you trusted in something other than yourself, but at this point, there's nothing left. It's only you and your, your search for your holy grail, your fountain of youth, or whatever it is that you're go- that's going to relieve you of your suffering. After 38 years, some of you have been in affliction longer than that. And yet living next to that pool in the shadow of that temple, a man walks up and casts another shadow right over where you're lying. And you look up and you can barely see his face as a silhouette in the sun. And looking down, he asks this question, do you want to be healed? I don't know about you, but after 38 years, there's only one thing that I'm going to say. There's only one reply. Do you want to be healed? I'm going to look up, look into those eyes, and say, that's the dumbest question I ever heard. What do you think I'm lying here for? What do you think I'm doing? Why am I next to this pool? 38 years. Years in what I think is remarkable restraint, this guy says to Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Do I want to be healed? What kind of question is that? That's the dumbest question I ever heard. Unless. Unless what Jesus is asking is not whether you want to be healed on your own, in your own way, as you like, going after what you'll never get. But do you want to be healed? Are you willing to be healed by me? Because I'm the only one who can actually give you what you're going after. It's a good question. Because it takes a lot of humility to admit that even in in our few square feet, in our corner of this world, left in the brokenness that many of us have been in for a long time, that God is yet a God of grace. And we can't secure for ourselves what we long for the most. This man doesn't even get around to saying yes. See that? Jesus simply says, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And it says at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. The man said, I have no one. Jesus says, I'm a someone. 
The man said, I got nobody. Jesus says, I'm a somebody. And not just anybody, but the one body who can make your body what it's meant to be. All because this story is about a feast. And a pool. And a question. But the point of the story doesn't unfold until after this guy's already healed. Because as much as this story is about a feast that that represents our longing for rest, a a pool that represents our running after that in all the wrong places, and, and a question as to whether we'll find that rest in Jesus, it also, lastly, is about a response. It's interesting because the guy doesn't even respond, right? But that's not the response this story's about. It says at the end of verse 9, now, now that day was the Sabbath. That's the feast that, that they were celebrating. It was the Sabbath. The, the weekly celebration of what God did in creation, week in and week out, remembering the past, longing for Him to do it again. To both restore this world, but even more so to make available the rest that we lost when we, when we first wandered away from God. Because, because even more than God's work in creation, the Sabbath was about God resting from that work when it was done. And it was a rest that we knew, that our, our foreparents knew. And Jesus shows up to say, I'm the one who can get it back for you. I'm the one that's going to reverse the curse. I'm the one that's going to deal with death so that you might have everlasting life even in the here and now. Because this wasn't just about a present restoration of some guy's broken body that would one day break again. If that's what this is about, Jesus should have stuck around that pool a little longer. I mean, for Pete's sake, he he picks one man out of the many. And all the rest, he just just passes by. So so that if healing in the here and now is what this story was about, Jesus' batting average is pretty bad. He's not even swinging. It's really just a joke. Unless this healing wasn't so much about the present restoration of some guy's broken body as it was, like every other sign in the Gospel of John, pointing to something more. That it was about a a present rest in the midst of the brokenness. Because an ultimate restoration was yet to come. Both of which are available only in Jesus. Even if nobody at that time seemed to get it. Let me just read through what happens because the response of both the Jews and this man who was healed seemed to suggest that that they didn't get what was going on. It says, now that day was the Sabbath, verse 10. So, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Forget if that's, that's what we're longing for. You're supposed to be resting. You should have waited another day, 38 years. One more day wouldn't have mattered. But he answered them, the man who, who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. 
They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him, ironically, in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, sin no more. Not because this guy was, had landed by that pool, because, but it's because he had sinned in the first place. That's not really what this is saying. But I think what Jesus was saying is that he shouldn't have given up on God and went to that pool at all. Go looking for angels in all the wrong places. Somebody stir in the water so I can jump in and beat others to the punch. He shouldn't have given up on God in the first place because Jesus was coming. God was coming. All that this guy was looking forward to, especially on that day, the Sabbath, when he should have been longing for God to do it again. Jesus was coming. Sin no more. Yet it's tragic. First thing this guy does after Jesus presents himself as the one who healed him. This guy's response was to rat out Jesus. This is the turning point in the gospel. This is where the the conflict begins. This is where Jesus' opponents are are first seen for what they are. And this is the guy who pointed him out. Verse 15, the man went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus isn't satisfied with that. There's more to it than than his just breaking some sacred law. He won't allow himself to be rejected because of their so-called rules. There's more to it. So Jesus answers them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus isn't satisfied with them just saying, oh, you're breaking the Sabbath. No, no, no. This is about more than that. You're going to reject me? You're going to reject me on my terms. Know what you're rejecting. And so this is why it says in verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Because Jesus and the work that he does at the other end of this gospel makes available a a present rest in the midst of the brokenness that points to an ultimate restoration yet to come. That God's got this. That's what rest is. It's looking at God and knowing that God's got this. And nothing can change that. Nothing you've done in the past. Nothing you're doing in the present. That God's got this. And Jesus says, if you're going to reject me, you better know what you're rejecting because I am what you're celebrating. I am what you are longing for. man that I very much admired in Scotland was a man by the name of David Robertson. He's probably Scotland's foremost evangelical voice in the public square. 
And we were sitting down for coffee one day chatting about the, the latest rant of the secular humanists against about their rejection regarding their rejection of God uh, on the grounds, as usual, that, that this world was far too broken to have been made by an all-good, all-powerful being. We're sitting down talking about this latest rant. And David turned to me at that point and told me a story about when he was a young minister. And if I remember it correctly, this is how it goes. He was running a youth program in his neighborhood, and a kid he had uh, grown somewhat attached to stopped showing up. So David decided to go around to where this kid lived to see if what had happened, if anything had gone wrong. He knocked on the door, and a rather rough-looking man answered it, the boy's father. said to him, I haven't seen Callum in a while. I just wanted to check to see if everything's all right. To which the dad said, he's not allowed to come anymore. We don't believe in God. To which David replied, do you mind if I ask you why? And the dad simply said, because I hate him. Now, for most of us, that would have been the end of the conversation. Walk away. But David, being the type of minister he was, he he, he pushed back a little. He said, excuse uh, my directness, but that doesn't seem very fair for you to hate someone you don't even believe in. Do you mind if I just ask you a little more? There's got to be a story behind that which prompted this man to tell David that the year prior he had lost his wife in a battle with cancer. So I don't believe in God because I hate him. Because it's been too long. I've been left in the suffering too long. I've been left without an answer too long. So I don't believe in God because I hate him. So David asked him, Does it help? Does what help? Not believing in God. Not believing in the God you hate because you blame him for taking your wife. Does it help? When in fact, he's your only hope of ever seeing her again. For this dad, those words were the beginning of a journey back to God. But tragically, based on the response of the Jews of Jesus' day, and no less the response of the invalid of 38 years, tragically, that was not the case for them. Yet Jesus says, everything you're longing for, when it comes to rest and restoration, that, that Sabbath of all other Sabbaths to look forward to, that, that satisfaction of that gypsy blood that runs through your veins, it is available and only available in me. And we're not going to dive into all the red letters that follow this story, but that's pretty much what they say. I, I'd encourage you to go and, and read through what is Jesus saying at the tail end of this story. And it's basically that. 
I come to do the work of my Father. I do and only do what I hear, what I see. But I do greater things than these. And if you reject me, you reject all hope of ever having any of it. Because Jesus came to do just that. To offer a present rest in the midst of the brokenness that God's got this. When all of life is falling apart, when you feel like all of life is falling apart, that God's got this and it's pointing forward to a restoration yet to come. Let me leave you with three questions. First, let me ask you, where does that gypsy blood bleed most in your life? Where are you wandering in life to find a rest that in fact undoes what you're searching for? We don't have many Olympic athletes in our midst, just a, just a, a sideways connection to the Canadian curling team. But we can go after rest in all the wrong ways. And so where does that gypsy blood run in your life? We're all prone to wander because we wandered away in the first place. What's the latest gold rush you've gotten swept into? Climbing the corporate ladder, buying a new toy, getting your child to the next milestone in life, living vicariously through them, finding that special someone. What is the wanderlust that's wedged itself in your heart? Because often the next step in our journey with God begins by naming the places we're wandering off. So write it down. Confess it. That's why we're here together. Confess that. Bring, it, bring others into that. Where does that gypsy blood bleed most? Second, let me ask you if, if you've somehow slipped into thinking even in the shadow of Christ and the shadow of the cross when it comes to that rest, even if you've recognized it's a rest that you've got to find in Him. That your few feet in your little corner of the world is the one corner God's working on a first come, first serve basis. How have you slipped into that? We all slip back there. That's our tendency as, as humans. That God's working, at least with me in my little corner of the universe, on a first come, first serve basis. And you can tell if you've slipped into this, if life, with God at least, has just become one big burden. If it just feels like one big mess. If there's no joy. And it feels like you're sinking beneath the weight of it. And the fact is, God won't allow you to do it on your own. So that's what you'll do. You go running for this in some place other than God, that's what will happen. Life will be one big mess. God's wired it that way. Because God in his infinite wisdom says you're only coming back to me if you come by my way or no way at all. So where are you slipping into thinking of particularly that relationship, not just wandering off into the world, but that relationship with God as if this thing is a first come, first serve basis? It's like the, the, the hymn writer William Cowper used to write these glorious hymns about the grace of God, the, the, the blood that flows and washes all as white as snow, but not me, he used to say. 
but not me. So how are you slipping into thinking of that relationship as a first come, first serve basis? Where does the gypsy blood bleed most? How are you thinking of that relationship with God on a first come, first serve basis? But then finally coming back to are you seeing that Jesus took care of the gypsy blood by bleeding his own? To provide you with a transfusion that rips away the need to wander anymore. Where are you forgetting Jesus? I'm only saying that, not assuming that of you, except that I assume that of myself. Week after week after week, consistently, this is what Catherine and I are up in bed talking about. How we've forgotten Jesus. Just in the the daily business of life. Just doing the kids. Just, Just trying to figure out why we're on this planet. That we've forgotten about Jesus. That He took care of it all. What are we worried about? Why are we still wandering? And why are we most of all still thinking of this relationship with God on a first come, first served basis? Those verses didn't make it into the Bible. They wouldn't even tell you of what those lame and paralyzed and blind believed. Because they didn't want you believing it. Because there are no angels stirring the pools of this this world that you could go jump in and, and beat somebody to the punch. So are you remembering the blood of Jesus? Like it was one put, by one who wandered much, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. A feast representing our deepest longings. A pool representing where we run to find rest for ourselves. And a question about whether we're willing to find that rest in Jesus. What's your response? Let me pray. Holy Father, I ask that today that we would see the pools in our own lives where we are searching for what we can never find without You and without Your Son. That we would see them for what they are. I pray that I would see the pools for what they are. And I pray that we would leave here today with more reason to feast than we ever had before. Celebrating what You've done in Him and looking forward to what you will still do again. And I pray each of us would answer in the affirmative the question of your son. Do you want to be healed? Yes, and may it be so. Amen. I know this isn't traditional, but I want to end today with a little Bible trivia. What's significant about the number 38? Why did Jesus wait till this guy had been there for 38 years? It's only spoken of once other, one other time in the Bible. But this is the number, the actual number, that Moses uses to describe the wandering in the wilderness. What we usually think of as 40, what's described elsewhere as 40. From the time they, they left Sinai, to the time they showed up on the River Jordan 
waiting to go into the promised land. I think what Jesus was saying when he showed up that day, maybe, maybe that, that first day of this guy's 38th year on a Sabbath, he was saying this isn't just about you, but about all who wandered before and all who would wander after. That in me, I'm the rest you've been looking for from the very beginning. I pray today as you leave that Jesus' question would haunt you this week. That you would have no moment where it's not ringing in your ears, whether at work or at home or the DMV or wherever you find yourself. Do you want to be healed? And that you would answer with a resounding yes with your entire lives. Go in peace. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.